All right. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, if you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. It is good. I'm glad that you would join us this morning. Uh, looking forward to diving into God's Word with you guys together this morning. Uh, we are together on the front end of a series taking a look at the first three chapters in the book of Revelation. Uh, and uh, especially what's, what's, what's in those chapters, a lot of times when you think about Revelations, it's just like all the crazy stuff that doesn't make sense. But uh, safe zone. Revelations one through three is kind of the safe zone, at least, right? A little bit warms us up into it. But at the heart of what's going on in, in these first three chapters of the book of Revelation is that Jesus is writing seven letters uh, to seven different churches, uh, local churches in one of the various cities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is now Western Turkey. And, and as we saw the last couple of weeks, th things aren't going great in these churches at the time. Um, they are being, uh, all of them are being threatened to various degrees by false teaching or temptation towards immorality or idolatry or spiritual complacency and apathy, and all of them are beginning to face increasing levels of persecution and, and opposition towards their faith and allegiance to Jesus. And on top of that, we saw how, how all of the founding pastors, all the original apostles by this point uh, in, the, in the late first century, they've all been martyred except for John. He's merely just been exiled on a desolate island in the middle of the Mediterranean, right? So no big deal, right? Um, so things are things are hard, and so it's in the midst of these situations, it's in the midst of these circumstances that, that we saw two weeks ago in chapter one that the risen, ruling, reigning, authority, King Jesus, he appears in glory to his friend the Apostle John, and he comes with, with some crucial messages for his churches, some really important messages for his people, and they were messages that were meant to comfort them and, and to encourage them. They were meant to, to empower them towards faithful endurance and steadfast obedience until the very end, and, and they were also meant as messages as well to correct these churches and to rebuke them, to, to call them to a repentance and, and to a, from a repentance from their idolatry and their immorality and their complacency. You see, in each of these letters, each of these messages that the risen, ruling, reigning King Jesus brings to his, his churches, they're messages that they desperately needed to hear. That they desperately needed to hear. And as we saw last week, as we studied the first letter to the church in Ephesus, they're also messages that you and I desperately need to hear as well. In fact, they're messages that every church in every age needs to hear and to pay attention to. I see, while these letters aren't written to us, they are absolutely written for us. And if we just read them theologically, what will happen is we'll end up just criticizing these churches or, or looking at other churches around us and, and seeing and criticizing them for the ways that we see those things happening. But if we understand that these seven letters contain truth that you and I need to hear, that you and I need to, to be challenged by and to be corrected by and to be encouraged by, then instead of just reading them critically, we'll instead we'll be able to, we'll be able to read them humbly. And we'll be able to say, you know, we might be a lot like these churches, or we might just as easily become just like any of them. And see, and the invitation as we read these letters is to ask the question, does the shoe fit? Does the shoe fit? Is there, does my life or our church reflect the things that Jesus commends or the things that he condemns in each of these letters. And so to whatever degree that our lives or our church does so, then we need to pay careful attention to Jesus' words, and to heed them, to respond rightly to them. And so as we open God's word this morning and read the second of these seven letters that Jesus has sent to his churches, 
Let us ask humbly that he might speak to us through them, to encourage us, to, to challenge us, to, to correct us, to comfort us for our good, but more than anything for his great glory so that our church, so that River City might be a place in which his glory is made known until he returns. And so to that end, let's pray and we'll dive into our study of the second letter to the church in Smyrna. Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are grateful for you. We are thankful that you would, uh, that, that these letters, they all remind us of your nearness and presence, your imminence, your, your involvement in the building of your church. And God, so we're grateful that you're not far off and distant. You are not far removed from our situations and circumstances. You are not unaware. God, you weren't then and you aren't now. And so humbly, King Jesus, we ask. God, might you speak a word of correction or a word of comfort, a word of encouragement, a word that might help us to follow you rightly. When we say, Jesus, our default mode is not to put ourselves under your word, but it's to be our own authority. And so we ask, King Jesus, that you would humble us graciously so that we might be able to respond rightly to your word and live rightly as your people. And so we just come saying this morning, we, we really need you. We can't do that on our own. We need you by your grace to cause that to happen in us this morning, and so we ask that you would. God, for uh, our good and for your great glory, we pray. Amen. Well, we are uh, this morning in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Jesus here speaking. He says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid then of what you are about to suffer, for I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days, but be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as the victor's crown. For whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And for the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus' second letter here, the, the second of seven letters he writes to these early churches in western Turkey. It's uh, written to the church in Smyrna. That's uh, modern day, that's the city in, west, in Turkey called Izmir. Uh, Smyrna was a beautiful and wealthy city in its day, second only in prestige and influence uh, to the great city of Ephesus that we talked about last week. The city was known for being the chief exporter of myrrh. That's where its name comes from, myrrh, smyrrh, right? You know, kind of play on words there, right? Um, myrrh, if you remember, it's a, is a valuable uh, oil or, or resin uh, that people use for perfume or incense or even embalming fluid. It was one of the gifts that the wise men gave Jesus. But most of all in the ancient world, Smyrna was known uh, for being kind of the headquarters or, or one of the main sites of early Roman emperor worship. In fact, it was the first city in all of the ancient world to, to build a, to erect a temple in honor of the Roman emperors. And as a reward for their early commitment to the, to the Roman Empire and its emperors, uh, the city prospered greatly under Roman rule for hundreds of years. And that only served to further increase the, the city's fierce loyalty to Rome and to its emperors and, and to the worship of Rome, the Roman emperors as deities. See, Roman uh, emperor worship pervaded many aspects of life in the city of Smyrna and, and throughout the 
Roman world, but especially so in the city of Smyrna. It was a, it was a requirement for everything from voting to, to owning property to, uh, to trading in the marketplace, even participation in local guilds. They would have been kind of like trade unions or local labor unions, but, but even more integral and important to society. And so a Christian's undivided allegiance flew in the face of all that. In fact, it was a, we saw how it was a requirement for all these things. And then under the rule of the emperor Domitian, refusal to worship the emperor as a god actually became a crime that was punishable by death itself. And so for a Christian living in this city, in the midst of this time, when this letter comes to them, their undivided allegiance to Jesus as Lord stood at odds with the very foundations of daily life in their city. It was, it was at odds with the, the world that they lived in and the society that they were a part of. And as a result, Christians were, were being marginalized and ostracized and slandered by their peers. They were being demoted or terminated from their jobs, suffering financial losses. They were facing imprisonment and even the threat of death. And so it's in the midst of these kind of circumstances and situations that Jesus' words come to the, church, the suffering church in the city of Smyrna, calling them to be steadfast and to be faithful to him in the midst of the current trials they're, they're, that they are experiencing, but also, as we read, the upcoming trials that they will be facing that are even more intense than what they are experiencing now. And what I want to show you this morning as we study Jesus' words to this church is that at the heart of what Jesus is showing them, at the heart of his message to this church, is a reminder to us about the transforming power of an eternal perspective. It's a message about the transforming power of an eternal perspective. You see, responding rightly to Jesus' words in the midst of our present reality always requires that our hearts and minds are set on a future reality. You see, the only way that fearlessness and faithfulness are going to characterize Christ's church is if our eyes are fixed on him and his promises and then the, the future that he secures for his people on their behalf. And so with that in mind this morning, we're going to walk through this letter and take a look at the five C's, if you remember from last week, the, the five C's that kind of form the basic structure of each of these letters. Uh, Christ's introduction, commendation, criticism, confrontation, and covenant. So the five C's of each of the letters. We begin first with Christ and his introduction to this church. See, he's, his introduction lays the foundation for everything else he's about to say to this, this struggling church. In verse 8, he described himself as the first and the last. In chapter 1, we saw Jesus described as the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. You see, and Jesus is reminding this church that even though their world seems to be turning upside down, that, that even though everything feels like it is out of control and in utter chaos, that he is still in control. You see, in calling himself the first and the last, Jesus is reminding them that he is the one that was at the beginning of history, and he will be the one that is the last one standing at the end of all things, and he is the Lord of all that lies between. He was there when it started, he will be there when it ends, and in the meantime, Meantime, he is sovereignly bringing about all situations unto his purposes. You see, God has a purpose, and he is working all of history unto his purposes and his ends. And I just need to be clear here. What I'm not saying is that God is the cause of this persecution that these churches in Smyrna are facing or that anyone faces. We'll see later that Satan and sin are behind those things. But what I am saying is that nothing that we face is outside of his control. 
Nothing that we face, he, he is able to use everything we go through as a part of his perfect purposes in our life. You see, you cannot always see that in the moment. We cannot always see that in the moment. You see, but one day we will see with God's eternal perspective the way that he has been working all things for our good and for his glory. And so Jesus begins this letter with a reminder and an invitation. I'm the first and the last. I'm the sovereign Lord of all of history. Trust me. Nothing can stop him from bringing about his purposes. Not people, not governments, not emperors, not Satan himself, not even death itself can do it. Because Jesus is not just the first and the last. Verse 8 goes on, he says, I am the first and the last, the one who died and who came to life again. You see, the one speaking to them, the one that they worship, the one who, whose name they are being persecuted for, for heralding and for having their allegiance for, even killed for, is not just the sovereign Lord of history. He is also the victorious king of life. He has conquered death itself on their behalf for them. Revelation 1.18, Jesus said to the apostle John, I am the living one. I was dead, but now look. I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. See, Jesus was reminding them he's alive, that he had conquered Satan and sin and death, that death was not the end of his story, and so it would not be the end of their story either. See, death does not have the final word. Jesus does, and he holds the keys that unlock death's door. He died, but behold, he lives forever. And so do those whose faith is found in him. John chapter 11, 25, Jesus speaking to his friend Mary here. She said, I am the resurrection and the life. For the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And so the great king of all of history comes to this young struggling church with a reminder of his sovereign authority. And of his authority, not just over history and over time, but over death itself. He's the author of history, the conqueror of death. And they must set their eyes on him. If they're going to have any chance of, of, of being a steadfast and faithful church to him, they're going to need to set their eyes on him. And so Jesus reminds them that he's sovereign, that he is alive. But we see in verse 10, he also reminds them that he is present. Verse 9, he goes on to commend them. He commends what he sees in this young, struggling church. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know about the slander. He says, I know. I know about your suffering for your allegiance to me. I know that you're being marginalized and ostracized and, and rejected by everyone, by the world and by the Jews. I, I know about the economic hardships that you are facing because you refuse to worship the emperor. And so you're being excluded from the trade guilds and from the marketplaces and you're losing your jobs and your careers and you're losing your homes and your savings. He says, I hear the verbal abuse that is being hurled at you. I know that you're being slandered. I know your reputations are being dragged through the mud because of your allegiance to me. I know the Jews in your city, they're informing on you. I know that they're telling the, your employers and, and the city officials that you're not one of them and that instead you worship me and not the emperor because they hate that you proclaim that I'm the Messiah and they want to ruin you. They say that they're my people, but their persecution against you, it shows that they are not. Like Satan, they oppose me. Jesus comes to this young church and he says, I know. 
I am not far off and distant. I am not unaware of your situations and your circumstances. I am near and present, and I am intimately aware of all that is happening. He says, I see you. I see you, and I know. But more than that, Jesus' words are a reminder, not just that he knows what is happening, but that he knows what it is like himself. That he has experienced the same. You see, Jesus experienced the same affliction and poverty and slander that they were facing. He experienced the same kind of rejection from the world and from his fellow people that they had. And he faced death just as they were facing. He had walked the same road that they were on. And so his words here are meant to be a reminder of a comfort for him, for them and an encouragement to them and to any church facing persecution for, for allegiance to his name. You see, one of the most comforting things about the gospel it's a reminder for us that our God is not far off and distant, that, that he is not unaware or uninvolved, and more than that, that he, is not, uh, that, he cannot, that he cannot understand. Instead, we see that Jesus experienced all that we would, and all the hardships that this church is facing, their great sovereign king subjected himself to as well. And so he is absolutely aware. He doesn't just know about their suffering. He knows what it's like. See, we tend to think that if, if God is good, that he loves us, then, then, we would, then, then he would never allow us to suffer. But the reality is, is that Jesus himself suffered and that he said if we would follow him, then we will as well. John 15, he says to his disciples, they hated me and they will hate you for if they persecuted me, they will indeed persecute you as well. And so Jesus comes to this church and he aligns with them. He meets them in the midst of their hurts. He sees their physical pain and their poverty. But, but one other thing he sees that we cannot miss. He sees their spiritual wealth. Verse 9, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. In the midst of their abject material poverty, they had become abundantly spiritually rich. They had embraced the truth that Paul wrote about in Corinthians when he said, for you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Likewise, Hebrews 10, chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 and 34, it speaks about Christians like those in Smyrna who are suffering. It says, remember those earlier days that you had received the light when you endured with a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, that other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated and you suffered along with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the compensation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and more lasting possession. You see, this young struggling church, their lives had revealed that although they were physically, materially poor, they were abundantly spiritually rich. They had indeed found true wealth, riches that could never be taken away, an inheritance that would not fade. In fact, their suffering for Christ had only increased the value of the riches they had. What a commendation. What a word of encouragement that must have been to them. Although we look weak and poor and struggling on the outside, we're rich. 
where it matters, the thing that matters most, we have plenty of. And so this church was suffering, but they were suffering well. And so their king commends them for it. He encourages them. He admires their suffering unto him. What normally follows Jesus' words of, of commendation in these seven letters are poignant words of criticism. But as we read uh, this short letter, there are none. Jesus has no words of criticism for this struggling church. He has nothing bad to say about them. One of only two of these seven churches that Jesus has no words of rebuke for. So instead of criticizing them and then confronting them, we see Jesus simply calling them. He calls them to two things in response to him. He calls them to fearlessness and faithfulness. Verse 10, he says this, So do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. For I tell you that the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as the victor's crown. You see, Jesus saw what they were going through. But as the first and the last, the sovereign Lord of all of history, he also sees what they are about to go through as well. They're about to face an intense time of persecution brought about by Satan himself. And some of them would be imprisoned and tried as traitors to Rome. And, but the good news in the midst of that persecution is that while it may be intense, it would be temporary. And scholars have all kinds of different opinions about what that, that 10 days mean, that 10 days of testing or persecution means. Some believe it was a literal 10-day period of time. Others believe it is symbolic of a brief period of testing. Either way, the point is that it would be temporary. Jesus assures them. He knows what is about to happen. He is not unaware. He is not caught off guard. He is absolutely sovereignly in control and aware of all that is happening. He knows the devil's plans and he is in complete control of the situation. So they need not be afraid. That, that command to not be afraid, it is the most common commandment in the entire Bible. It's the one that comes up more than any other. You see, because this is the most common problem for us as Christians. You see, who or what we fear, it has the power to control us and it shapes what we do and, and it shapes how we live from little things to big things and everything in between. My wife is often afraid that I'm going to get sick and so she sends me with a pack of Lysol wipes everywhere I go and reminds me, right? have you been wiping down the tables at the coffee shops, right? I, but it's bigger things as well. My seminary professor, this just, just this week, he talked about in the past how, how he had been paralyzed to even get on a flight because he was so afraid of what might happen on a plane. But fear doesn't just control us on a personal level, but on a community and societal level. Just, just look at the political landscape. In the next year, what you'll see is constant ads and, and policies, and at the root of a vast majority of them are going to be fear. Fear is going to be the motivation behind it. Could you imagine what would happen if this person gets elected or if this person stays elected or, or whatever happens? What will happen to our society? Everything will be ruined. All will be crushed. Fear becomes this driving motivation for everything that people are called to do because fear is powerful. When it comes to our kids, fear can drive many of our decisions, whether it's about their education or their health care or a million other things. Fear has the power to control our lives. And the only way to overcome our fear is by setting our eyes on Jesus, who is bigger 
than all that we would fear. He is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the victorious king of life who conquered death. He tells this young church, they might take your money, they might take your reputation, they, they might even take your life, but they cannot take me. I am the one who holds you in my hand. See, and when we set our eyes on him, when we set our eyes on him, instead of being afraid, we'll be able to be faithful. Faithful even unto death. You see, the city of Smyrna, it had a reputation for faithfulness to Rome and its emperors in the face of opposition and uncertainty. I told you at the beginning that this city, it, it hitched its train to Rome long before Rome was, Rome was the power that it was. And so they had this reputation of, of fierce loyalty to that, to that emperor and to that thing. And so in his letter to Smyrna, Jesus calls this, the, the Christians in this city to fulfill the reputation of this city in an altar together different way, to fulfill the reputation of faithfulness in this city to, to a different kingdom and to a, to a different king, a king who could offer them the true crown of life, a king who, who offered them a covenant that they would not be hurt at all by the second death. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, God's control does not mean that Satan is prevented from inflicting pain or hurt. Nowhere does the New Testament promise freedom from suffering in this life. Indeed, without the cross, there will be no crown. But what God does guarantee is that though the church may suffer even the death of the body, she will not suffer the death of the soul. Revelations 20 verse 6 reads this way, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For the second death has no power over them. They will be the priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him. You see, it was that eternal perspective that would go on to shape the lives of the believers in this city. They heard Jesus' words. They heard him remind them of who he was and of their confident hope they could place in him. That included a young man named Polycarp who was likely sitting in the congregation when this letter was first read to them. Over the coming years, Polycarp, uh, earlier on in his life, Polycarp would have been discipled by the Apostle John himself. And over the coming years, he would spend the latter half of his life serving as a pastor and a leader over the growing number of local church bodies scattered throughout the city of Smyrna. Church history tells us that he became a man who was widely regarded for his steadfast faithfulness to Jesus. At the age of 86, this man who had spent his life serving Jesus and, and ministering and, and helping to proclaim the gospel in his city, he was arrested and he was informed on and then arrested and taken to Rome and commanded by government officials to deny Jesus, to recant his faith. He famously responded, 86 years I have, spent, I have been his servant. He has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king? the one who has saved me. Furious, the, the Roman officials, they threatened to throw him to the wild beasts or, or finally to burn him alive if he would not recant, recant. And Polycarp answered them finally. He said, you threaten me with fire which burns for a little while and is soon extinguished, but you know not the coming fire of judgment and the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for then? Do what you have come to do. And so they quickly built a pyre, and as the guards prepared to nail him to the stake, he calmly told them to leave him as he was. 
He said, for the one who gives me strength to endure the fire will also give me strength to remain at the stake unmoved. And he offered a psalm of praise to God and they ignited the fire. You see, right to the end, Polycarp, one of the most well-known early Christians from, our, from the early Christian history, he suffered fearlessly and, faithless and faithfully. And his steadfast obedience to Christ was a powerful testimony. It was an inspiration not only to the church that he pastored so faithfully in the city of Smyrna, but to Christians throughout the centuries. And in no small part to his leadership and his faithfulness to Jesus, the city in which he led remained at a place where Christianity flourished for many, many years, where the people of God remained devout and steadfast in the face of suffering, following Jesus' example and that of their leader, Polycarp. In fact, there are still today a small number of gospel preaching churches in that city. You see, his story is a testimony to us of the transforming power of an eternal perspective. Fearlessness and faithfulness, it characterized the life of Polycarp because his eyes were fixed on Jesus and the promises that he had made and secured on his behalf. You see, and though we are not facing the kind of persecution that this church faced by any stretch of the imagination, you see, you and I still desperately need that perspective. You see, because just as easy as it was for their lives to be ruled by fear, so it is for ours. It is easy for our lives to be consumed and controlled by our worries and our fears and our concerns and to let those things be the thing that shape our character and shape our choices and shape how we live and what we do. And unless we are captivated by a vision of the ruling, reigning, risen king of all of history, the one who has conquered life and death itself, then we will always be afraid of something. And so the invitation is for us to set our eyes on him, the one king in, in whom we can trust, a, a king in, whom, in, in, who, in view of whom all other fears are driven out king who secures the crown of life for his people and who offers it to all those who would hear and heed his words. We live in a world that is ruled by fear all around us. And if we are to be King Jesus' people, if we are to respond rightly to his words, then we must be a people who are controlled by him and not our fear. You see, in one of the ways in which we help to set our eyes on him, one of the ways in which we help to remind ourselves of the truth about who he is and the, and the future that he secures is by taking communion together every week. It's a, it's a reminder for us of the future that Jesus has secured for us on our behalf as he, his body and blood were broken and shed for us so that we might become heirs to an inheritance that could never spoil or fade and, and become heirs to riches that, that could never be taken away. You see, communion, it does not change your status or your standing with God in any way. It doesn't save you. It doesn't make you right with him. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus, to set our eyes on him. So that in remembering who he is and all that he has done, we might be filled with a confidence and a hope and a love and a gratitude for him that overflows into a life that is characterized by steadfast obedience unto him. 
The bread and the juice, they're in the back. There's a table on the left and on the right. And during our time of worship, you're free to go back and to take communion. And so as we sing and as we worship and remember the gospel together in song, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if he is the one that you proclaim as Lord and God, and whenever you're ready, go back. Take communion. Do it as a celebration. Do it as a remembrance of all that he is and all that he has done and, the, and a reminder of the future that he has secured by faith in him. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to him. But if that's not the case yet, if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it really means to follow him. And, and if he is not the one who holds your highest allegiance, if he is not the, yet the one that you trust and proclaim to be Lord and God, then I would encourage you to hold off on taking communion this morning. You are welcome here. You are welcome as a part of this community. But instead of coming to the communion table as some just religious ritual going through the motions... Instead, come to Jesus. He is the one you need. He's the King and God that you are looking for to save and rescue and give you hope. And so come first to him. And so as we sing this morning, as we take communion, I'd encourage all of us, talk with God. Pray. Pray yourself, but also pray for the countless number of Christians throughout this world who are actually facing prison and death for gathering to worship alongside us this morning. Pray for those who are in prison and those who are suffering, those who, who are facing affliction and financial, financial loss because of their allegiance to Jesus. But don't just pray that their suffering would end. Pray for that, absolutely, but don't stop there. Instead, pray that God would empower his people to be faithful in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of it, so that their lives might be a proclamation of the great glory of Jesus in all places. Ask God to empower you as well to be faithful, even in the limited and small ways that we face persecution. Ask him to help you to set your eyes on him and the eternal reality which he secures for you so that your life would not be ruled and controlled by fear and worry, but instead would be ruled by uh, a confidence in the hope that you have in him. And so to that end, let's pray. King Jesus, we are so grateful that you have come as the ruling, reigning, risen Lord of history and conqueror of death. God, we are thankful for these words that are written to a church in a much harder situation than we might ever face. And we are thankful as well that, their wor that your words to them, they speak also to us. They call us to an eternal perspective marked by a, a hope that is found in the future reality that you secure for your people, a reality in which that cannot be moved and cannot be taken away. And so Jesus, we are thankful that we get to come and worship you, the great King of all things this morning. And that in worshiping you, we get to remind ourselves of who you are and all that you have done so that we might live lives characterized by fearlessness and faithfulness, by steadfast obedience unto you. God, for our good, for your great glory in all the world we pray. Amen.